As Joey said, our text this morning comes from Zechariah chapters 9 and 10. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind, and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart, and heaped up silver like dust, and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions, and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them, as the flock of his people. For like the jewels in a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, And will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone. From him the tent peg. From him the battle bow. From him every ruler. All of them together. 
They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before, though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries. They shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon, till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Thank you, Colleen. Good morning. Kiddos, off you go. As uh, they go back to be discipled in the grace and mercy and love and kindness of Christ, let me uh, me pray for us as we open up this passage. A lot to think about here, isn't there? So let's pray. Lord God, we are weak in so many ways. But you are strong. So we plead your strength this morning that we might be given eyes to see all that is before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, it is a common thing that is often said that all religions are essentially the same. I'm sure some of you have heard that before. And yet the Christians claim of a distinctive thing. We are very distinctive from the world's religions. And the distinctive of the world's religions that makes us, again, distinctive from the rest of the world is that we embrace weakness in favor of the external power and love of God to find peace in the world. That's our distinctive. Very different from the rest of the world. When we consider the other two major worldviews, religion and secularism, we can see this difference. Religion teaches mankind that if one can perform enough good religious deeds, then they will earn their way to heaven by their good behavior and thus find peace. Similarly, secularism teaches mankind that there is within us enough resources to craft our own meaningful life here on earth in order to find peace. So in both those cases, both in religion and secularism, peace and liberty come by our own industry. Whereas Christianity's symbol of the cross, a divisive execution, reveals our distinction. We are a people that embrace weakness in order to find peace with God, peace in the world. And guys, that's exactly what we're going to see in this passage this morning from Zechariah 9 and 10 as we continue our series through this book. title of the sermon this morning is The Conquering Shepherd King. Two points that should be familiar to all of you by now that if you've been walking through this through. Worldwide justice for false worship. Worldwide peace for true worship. Same two themes basically we've been seeing all the way through this uh, prophecy in Zechariah. So let's go ahead and dive in there. Worldwide justice 
for false worship. Worldwide justice for false worship. You see that from chapter 9 all the way from verse 1 down to 8 most clearly. However, you see it pop up all throughout the rest of chapter 9 and 10. Uh, we see that in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus. Verse 2, it's against Hamath, Tyre, and Sidon. Verse 5, it's against Ashkelon, Gaza, and Ekron. Verse 6, Ashdod, Philistia, and so on. It's against those people groups. And you ask the question, who are these people? Uh, We've heard about Babylon, right? And we know that they are enemies of God. But all of these people that are being listed here, these are historic enemies of God's people. And friends, that's the most important thing you need to know. You don't need to go back and understand the history of every single one of these people groups in order to understand the passage. These are God's representative of God's enemies. So God is intending to conjure up the memory of the enemies of God so as to symbolize his judgment on all of God's enemies, no matter who or where they are. And we know that's what's being referenced because of what is said there right at the beginning of the passage in verse one. Verse 1, for the Lord has an eye on mankind, not just the region of the Middle East. And you'll see there on all the tribes of Israel. Which also means the Lord isn't only looking for enemies around the world. He's also looking for enemies within ethnic Israel. And so in that sense, the Lord is no respecter of persons, meaning he is bringing judgment on all the world. So on Israel and the region of Uh, around Israel, as well as the whole world. Verse 8 says, None shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see, that's God speaking, I see with my own eyes. We see in verse 10, later in verse 10, we'll come to this later, a king that is coming, he's going to rule from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. We've seen this before through Zechariah. God is patrolling the earth. So this passage is referencing this notion of God's judgment over the world. Uh, I was a history major in college, and it was a common uh, sort of message from my history professors that would say when they referenced the Bible, that they're just referencing these authors were kind of blinded uh, Middle Eastern peoples who mistook what was happening in their region for what was happening in the world. And so they kind of in that way dismissed the claims of the Bible. So, in other words, since it flooded around them, they'd say, well, therefore, the God flooded the world. Or since God defeated the enemies around them, therefore, he's going to defeat all the rest of the world. Uh, But there's a major flaw in that argument, because as we see here, the writers of the Bible don't claim to write and represent a regional God. The authors of the Bible claim to be speaking on behalf of God himself and this God that they represent very consciously and openly, openly has made claim to create the world. He claims to govern the world and bring justice to the whole world. Again, you can see that in verse 1, all mankind. You can see that in verse 10, sea to sea, ends of the earth. And so, friends, if God is real, and he is, and if God made the world, and he did, why would he not be able to make claims on the world, and administer justice to the world. God is God, and He has made the world. Therefore, He is able to bring justice to a world that treats Him like trash. That's exactly what we find people, the nations, doing here. God is again using these historic enemies as types or shadows of the forthcoming judgment God will have on the whole world, including the false worship of Israel itself. So let's go ahead and take a look at that false worship that we see here in the passage that God is going to judge. Look at chapter 9, verse 2 to 4. There we learn about Tyre and Sidon. 
and how they are, verse 2, very wise. Their ramparts in silver that is so numerous that is like the dust. Their fine gold that is like the mud of the streets. Remember that little phrase. It's going to come up in a moment. Their possessions and their power on the sea. Verse 4. Now, we know that there's nothing inherently wrong with wisdom and gold and silver and power on the sea. In fact, the Lord even uses these things for the good of His people from time to time. And so the problem is not in and of these things in and of themselves. The problem is that the enemies of God hope in these things for their protection and their reward to the neglect of God. You can see that reflected in verse 5 of chapter 9, referencing three other people groups. We see that they will anguish because its hopes are confounded. So the Lord is going to confound or wither up where the nations place their hope. And why is it you ask the Lord cares so much about the world placing its hope in earthly powers? Well, the answer is that hopes in things like that, things of the world, encourages pride. And therefore, God will also deal with pride. You can see that there in verse 6 of chapter 9. We can see how the Lord will cut off the pride of Philistia as well as its abominations in verse 7. In chapter 10, verse 11, we see the Lord will lay low the pride of Assyria, which is another enemy of God's people, and the scepter of the kings of Egypt. And so the false worship of the nations is represented by the way they place their hope in earthly powers, which gives them pride thereby ignoring the God that made them for himself in favor of worshiping earthly powers. In all these things, sin is manifested, which God is going to judge. Just as Joey helpfully defined for us sin last week, sin is rebellion. Uh, Sin is rebellion by its loving something more than God. It's not just in the things that we do, but it's deeper than that. It's in the motives with which we do them. It's in our loves. And that could even include our loves of good things when we love them too much. Things like silver and gold and ramparts and houses. Good gifts. But when we place our hope in them, when we take pride in them, when our lives are defined or identified by them over and against God, we come to stand under the judgment of God out of our neglect for the one that made us. And guys, this is exactly what we see happening in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve want to be like God. The Lord has even more to say about who he will bring judgment to. Look over there to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1. It tells God's people to ask him for rain. In other words, go to him for provision. And then he transitions in verse 2. For household gods utter nonsense and diviner see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders. In other words, the Lord is not only opposed to anyone that finds hope or definition in themselves or things over and against God. He's also angered by those that teach people to hope in those things. Teach people to worship in false ways. So. We'll talk about this more next week, but folks, the leaders, the shepherds, the people that you place, you choose to place yourself under in the teaching of the word. That is some of the most important decisions you'll make in your entire life. You've got to be careful who you place yourself under when they teach the word. We'll talk about that again more next week. But these Israelites chose to listen to nonsense and take it as wisdom. They gave themselves to shepherds that toted out teaching that was full of empty consolation. 
And this stoked the anger of the Lord because these false shepherds claimed to speak for God. They lied about God. They even attempted to steal from God. And of course, God will then bring judgment upon those false shepherds, those false teachers. There are two verses as a pastor that I think about a lot as it references these kinds of things. The one is in Hebrews 13 that teaches me that I will have to give an account for the church that I pastor. It's a scary thought. And the other one is James chapter 3 verse 1 that says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those of us who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Not because, let me make it clear, not because we as pastors are better than the candlestick maker or the assembly line worker. But it's because of the nature of what we do. I'm literally opening up in a Bible telling you who God is and what you ought to believe about him. And if I get that wrong, I am in most people to be most pitied. And so this is one of the many reasons we preach expositionally here, because we want the point of the passage to be the point of the sermon. Uh, we want God's point to be driven into our hearts. We don't want culture's point, whatever's sort of popular. We don't want what is my point, right? Who really cares what I think, right? We want God's point to be driven into our hearts. That's what we're after. We're after the Lord. And so the Lord, we see, is angered and justifiably so because of these false shepherds. And friends, the world is full of them today. The world is full of false religions and false churches led by false teachers that even take the name of Christ tickling ears. He will bring justice to them in the end because he's angered how they lie about him, how they steal from him. Not teaching others to hope in the one true and living God. Let's transition a bit and see how this worldwide judgment will come. We can see this worldwide judgment on these people's sin in places like verse 4, where the Lord says he's going to strike down their power on the sea. They're going to be devoured by fire. Verse 5, Ashkelon will see this and be afraid, as will Gaza, as they will writhe in anguish. The king will perish. Ashkelon will be uninhabited. We see in verse 6, the Lord will cut off the pride of Philistia. Verse 7, the Lord will take away its blood and its abominations. Chapter 10, verse 3, again, the Lord will punish the leaders, the false leaders. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 5, pulling off the language. Here's that little echo of chapter 9, verse 3. The Lord will trample the foe in the mud of the streets. In other words, he'll take that gold and put it down. And notice throughout all of these mentions of judgment. Notice throughout that it's the Lord that's speaking. That it's the Lord that was going to do all of these things. Chapter 9, verse 7. I will take away its blood. 9, 8. I will encamp at my house. Chapter 9, verse 13. I will stir up your sons, O Zion. Against your sons, O Greece. And notice in 9.13, look at that verse. Notice in that verse, the Lord shows us how he will deliver this justice in himself. In part, he says, I have bent Judah as my bow and I have made Ephraim its arrow. 9.15, the Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread down like sling stones. 10.5, they shall be like mighty men in battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. In other words, God is going to use his people to enact his justice in part. And so summing up what we've seen so far, the Lord is going to bring worldwide justice to the nations for their idolatry, for their disordered loves, for their pride, for their hopes in the wrong places, for their false teaching and believing. And he will use in part the sons of Zion to do it, his people to do it. But there's more. Look down at chapter 10, verse 11. 
Uh, you'll see in verse 8, I will whistle. Verse 9, I will scatter. Verse 10, I will bring them home. And then look, notice, that, notice that transition in verse 11. We get a shift. And he, there's a he now. I, 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 then he shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the storyline of the Bible, you might be hearing an echo there, and you should. Passing through the sea, striking down waves to defeat enemies. Does that sound familiar to anyone? This is not this is a not so veiled reminder of what Moses did. When the Lord used him to light, lay up his or bring up his hands to see the Red Sea crash over Pharaoh's army that was uh, trying to destroy them. And upon getting to that other side, again, Moses lifts up his hands. The waters come in the Red Sea and wash away the enemy. And God's people move on to the land of promise. And so here we find that there is a he that's going to do that. One that's sort of like the Lord and like Moses. And the sons of Zion will trample the enemies of God around the world, as well as this he that will strike the proverbial sea, wash away the enemies. And notice chapter 9, verse 15, one more important detail. It's going to come, this worldwide judgment is going to come after the sounding of a trumpet. That the Lord God himself will blow. Let's drill down this notion of of, uh, trumpet. We've got worldwide judgment by the Lord who will use the sons of Zion to administer that judgment as well as a he that is like the Lord and related to Moses. He will strike the seas, wash away the enemies after a trumpet sound. Where is it we're getting this notion of trumpet sounding? Well, if we were to look back in redemption history in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 9, we see a trumpet being sounded one time every seven years in the nation of Israel. On the Day of Atonement inside the year of Jubilee. To proclaim liberty. Peace. So atonement and peace. Trumpet is sounded. Fast forward then to Isaiah 27.13. Which would have been before the time of Zechariah. Isaiah 27.13. Isaiah says there, like Isaiah. He tells of a future trumpet that will be blown. So that those who were lost will come to worship the Lord. On the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Then fast forward to the New Testament, Matthew 24, 31, where Jesus teaches that a loud trumpet call will send the angels to gather God's elect from the whole earth. We might call those people that he gathers the sons and daughters of of Zion. All the way down to the very last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 11. Ladies, you studied this. You should know this this morning. You studied 12. You get 11 just before that. We find a trumpet is sounding. The reign of Christ beginning and the nations raging because of the coming for the time of judgment, which leads into chapter 11, verse 19, where we have the temple of heaven being opened. For those to come up to the mountain and worship. So a trumpet sounds the symbol or sounds the signal for the beginning of the end. Folks, what we're reading here in Zechariah 9 and 10 What we find here is that these passages, this passage, stands inside the consistent theme of Scripture from beginning to end where God will blow a trumpet and two things will happen. Christ, having atoned for the sins of his people, will return to enact justice upon the nations, upon his enemies to wash them away and then bring peace and liberty to those that love him as they worship up on the mountain or in the temple forever and ever. 
this, friends, is what the story of everybody on planet Earth wants, ultimately. You ever notice that every movie you watch has some notion of this story in it? Everyone wants a world where justice is given to evil and peace or liberty is given to the good under a good kind of king. And guys, that's in us all because it's the story that God is writing in the world. That's what God's doing right now in the world. That's what he's going to do when that trumpet sounds and Christ returns. The question for you then is which people are you a part of? Where's your citizenship? Are you among the sons of Zion? Or are you among the tribes of Ashkelon, Gaza, and Ekron? Or of Greece? Are you among those that the Lord has made peace, chapter 9, verse 10, by the blood of His covenant? Or are you among those that hope in riches, follow false teaching, or are prideful by your trusting in the ramparts of your own building? All of us in this room and everyone around the world is in one of those two camps. We are all among the mankind that the Lord has His eye on. No one escapes His sight. And so where are you? And then second question, how is it you know you're there? Now I realize that when we talk about this notion of worldwide justice, it sounds a bit fantastical, doesn't it? It Sounds sort of like a sci-fi movie that you watch and go, surely that's not going to happen. Some of you may even be thinking, Nathan, you don't actually believe this, do you? Well, friend, I do believe it. Not only because this scripture teaches it, but let me give you three reasons why I believe that there is coming before us a worldwide judgment for sin, for false worship. Three brief reasons. One, there are scores and scores of prophecies that have already been realized. Why wouldn't this one be realized? Scores of prophecies, in particular prophecies relating to judgment. God promised years before Israel was exiled that there would be an exile if they didn't repent. And of course they did. And he even said it would be 70 years and they came back. So that one was true. Jesus even said that there would be a judgment upon that very generation of whom he spoke to. And we know in the year 70 AD that there was a judgment. So why wouldn't this one be answered? Second reason why I believe that this is a true thing, it's not a sci-fi thing, is that if God made the world, why couldn't he judge the world? We've already talked about this. If God put the world in order, he sustains it by his presence. Why would he not be able to bring the world he made into the judgment that he predicts here? And third reason why I believe that worldwide justice and judgment is true is because every human being on planet Earth hungers for worldwide justice and worldwide peace and liberty. Therefore, why would we have such a hunger if such a satisfaction did not exist? We have a universal hunger for food and we have food. We have a universal hunger for water. We have water. We have a universal hunger for love and community. God has made provision for all of these things. And so this, why would God not make provision for this desire for worldwide peace and justice? The answer is, friends, he has. Zechariah is making it clear that this will happen. And he makes clear who will be in what camp. So again, friend, where are you? Where does your citizenship lie? And how is it you know that? Are you among those sons of Zion? Are you among the inhabitants of those that oppose, or are you among those that oppose God and His people? And lest you think, friend, that judgment is not uh, becoming of a loving God, friend, recall that it is love that drives justice. I would want justice for anyone that would harm my two sons because I love them. Love and justice go together. 
And so where are you and how is it you know? Zechariah makes clear that a worldwide judgment for false worship is on its way. In fact, this passage even tells us that it's already begun. That leads us to our second point. We said first off, worldwide judgment for false worship. Here secondly, we see worldwide peace for true worship. Now some of you that know this passage, you've been saying to yourself, Nathan, when are you going to get to verse 9? Right? Verse 9 is one of the most recognizable verses in all the Bible. Chapter 9, verse 9. Certainly one of the most recognizable verses of the Old Testament. And so what we see happening here, as you'll notice, chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, you get all this judgment, and notice right after that comes the peace. Comes peace, worldwide peace. Common pattern in Zechariah, common pattern in the Bible itself. On the heels of judgment comes peace. And listen to these words again, beloved. Beautiful words. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today, I declare that that I will restore to you double. Such beautiful words. Such great hope, isn't it? So just think about this, guys. We have a king that is coming to Jerusalem, coming to Jerusalem and coming with him. Did you see it there? Three things coming with this king that's coming to Jerusalem. Three things. First, he's coming with righteousness, which, by the way, no king before this had ever been righteous. When he comes, he's bringing salvation. Literally, he shows up. Salvation comes with him. And thirdly, amazingly, when he comes, he'll be humble. What a king. A king that always does what is right. A king that brings salvation. And through the midst of that all, he's humble. He will ride into, donkey, ride into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. This is so key. Zechariah is telling us the kings and queens of this world trust in their silver and in their gold. They trust in the power that they have on the sea. They trust in their ramparts, their fortresses to keep them safe. They look to earthly powers and they laugh at the claims of a transcendent God who lays claim to the world in a book. The nations, they are prideful that they have all that they need in the world to be safe and secure and at rest. And right, the world agrees with him. Don't we, even in a way, agree with him? We gawk at the pomp of kings and queens today. We stare when limousines like chariots of old pull up and we watch with wonder the people that get out of them. People by the millions line up at their gates and peer through them into those mansions that watch their houses be guarded by soldiers with guns. And we think, oh, that I had power and wealth like these. Then I would be peaceful. Then I would know that there is some reason for living. Yes, friend, kings and queens of the world are the envy of the nations. They define the hopes of our world. And simultaneously, they reflect empty consolation. Most every king has promised worldwide peace in some way, shape, or form. And there's been a few that have actually tried it. And every single one of them failed and died miserable deaths. And in 
walks the King of Kings to inaugurate his kingdom. Not on a war horse, but on a donkey. In walks the King of Kings, not in deception and immorality, not in abominations, but in righteousness. Not in pride, not in arrogance, not in self-determination, not in silver and gold, but in humility. This is the king that Israel would be looking for. And 500 years later, he came. He came. This very verse, Zechariah 9.9, was quoted by Jesus' disciple in Matthew 21 to describe the fulfillment of the day that we now know as Palm Sunday. As it was when it was prophesied, this humble king came. He came into the world. As it was prophesied, he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem and then placed in a horse's trough because there was no other place for him to lie his head. Jesus, the king, was raised in a town called Nazareth, where it was said nothing good comes from. He surrounded himself with simple men and women, fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes and drunkards. And when he came into Jerusalem, the town Zechariah said that he would come into on the back of a donkey, a simple animal of trade. He was praised and the people cried, Hosanna, praise be to God. They believed their king had finally come and with him their salvation. But it was only five days later those same people would trade their cries of Hosanna for cries of crucifixion. In fact, when given an opportunity to take him or a common criminal named Barabbas back, they chose the criminal. And so Christ Jesus was flogged and crucified on a cross. In fact, as he hung, many of the kings and queens of their day came by him and they laughed at him because they thought, though, he had been defeated and they mocked him. They said he claimed to save the world. He can't even save himself. Thought he lost. And written above Jesus' head was his crime. King of the Jews. We might say above his head was written Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous, having salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, and eventually, a week later, mounted on a cross. You may be thinking, why would Israel do this? Why would they reject their king? Especially when it was so clear, when they saw it. How did they go from seeing him to not seeing him so quickly? Because, friends, Israel, like the rest of the world today, believed that Jesus would come in like the kings and queens of Damascus, Tyre, Sidon, Ashkelon, and Gaza. They believed that he would be crowned with silver and gold. They believed that he would have power on the seas right then and there. They believed that he would be an earthly ruler and defeat the Romans that had enslaved them. And finally, the Israelites would have freedom on earth. Finally, they would have peace. The Israelites, friends, never learned the lesson. Overall, they never learned the lesson of their very first king, Saul. The first king, Saul, was tall, dark, and handsome. He was powerful. He was strong in the eyes of the world. That's why they chose him. And he came to nothing precisely because he did not trust in the might of God. He did not trust his own weakness, but instead he trusted his own obedience. And as a result, he was pushed away. And who did the Lord choose in his place? Not the strongest, not the oldest. Another shepherd boy. 
chose the youngest and the weakest, a simple shepherd boy named David that got that that believed David, that believed that God was strong enough to take down the mightiest of giants when no one else would because he was worth it and he was able. This is the one that God would take and make the wealthiest and the mightiest of kings of Israel, a shepherd king that defeated Goliath, not in his own strength. By his faith in the one true and living God. Israel as a whole would never learn the lessons of those two kings. But there were some in Israel who did. There was Simeon and Anna. That understood this humble Messiah would come. Rejected by the world. There would be those 120 that huddled in that room. Scared after Christ was crucified. Believing that salvation does not come by earthly powers and earthly hopes and earthly dreams. Peace and liberty was going to come by a king that was going to become a pauper so that we who are paupers might become kings and queens ourselves. So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem that Palm Sunday, he came to fulfill these verses. And in doing so, he inaugurated or began his administration over the world. He did bring salvation with him. He finished it on the cross. He said as much. And because he conquered sin and death on the cross in the resurrection, he then began his rule from sea to sea. And his sacrifice is finished like the set, like the foundation of the temple in Zechariah's day. It is the foundation has been laid, but there's work to be done. By his Holy Spirit, God has empowered us to tend not to our paneled houses, but instead finish building the temple. We Gentiles that believe have been grafted into the branch of Israel to be part of the temple. That is, by the authority of Christ on heaven and on earth, we are told to make disciples that are baptized and then taught to obey all that he taught. And as this happened, as people are one to Christ, as churches are planted, each of those churches, each of those people are like rocks that build up the temple of the Most High God. And soon enough, as it is populated, that temple, by every tribe, tongue, and nation, Christ will return. There will be a trumpet sound. Christ will return. Only this time, Jesus is not returning on a donkey. He is returning on a war horse. Because this time, He comes to conquer. Which is all that we've already rehearsed in that first point. And when Christ returns, look over there in chapter 10, verse 3. Look what He will do to His people. Look what He will do to you, beloved. He will make us like a majestic steed in battle. Why? Because He cares for you. Chapter 10, verse 5. We will be like mighty men in battle on that final day. We will trample the Lord's foes. and We will fight because the Lord is with us. In other words, it's His strength. It's not ours. He will strengthen us to fight with Him for justice in the world. He's already administered His justice for us in Christ on the cross. That justice has already been satisfied. Now it is left for Him to bring justice to those that rejected the cornerstone and would not swear allegiance to the King that comes. Instead, they go on trusting themselves and their own kings. I had to cut it out of the whole sermon process, but there's a whole thing you should go back and study today about the rejection of the cornerstone and how it lays inside of Matthew 21. After He comes, Christ administers justice, beloved. And we see chapter 9, verse 10, the war horse that we sort of kind of feel like we have to fight with nowadays, the war horse, the battle bow shall be cut off and Jesus, our King, will speak peace from sea to sea and all the earth forever. Amen. Verse 11, 
Why? Don't miss verse 11. Because of the blood of His covenant to us in Christ. Nothing to do to us, all because of the blood of the covenant that we see in this coming King. He will, verse 11, finally finish what He has begun. He will set we prisoners to our flesh and the world free once and for always. Chapter 9, verse 16, we will shine like we will shine in the land like the jewels of a crown. And we will say, how great is His goodness. How wonderful is His beauty. Chapter 10, verse 6, He will bring us back because He has compassion on us. And He won't reject us. It will be as though He never rejected us. And He will be our God and He will answer us. Chapter 10, verse 7, Our hearts will be glad as with wine and our children will see it all and be glad and our hearts will rejoice. Wasn't it Jesus that told us that He goes to prepare a place for us and that He will come back again to take us with Him that we might be where He is? Didn't He promise us that? Didn't He tell us that He was going to go away for a time and come back and get us because He's preparing a place for us? Chapter 10, verse 8 says that He will whistle for us when He comes to get us. And He will gather us in. Look at the words. Because He redeemed us. Chapter 10, verse 12. We will walk in the strength of His name. And so, Restoration Church family, your application is found in chapter 9, verse 12. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. And He will restore us double for all our struggles here on earth. Embrace weakness. Trust in Christ, the humble Christ. And soon enough, that trumpet will sound and we will be with Him. Do not trust in silver and in gold. Do not be vain, prideful, arrogant in your own industry. Do not trust the power of the nations that will soon fall. Trust your stronghold as a prisoner of hope. Trust Christ and nothing else to give you true peace. Be reminded that we trust in a king that was mounted on a donkey and on a cross and from them conquered the world. We trust in the king who, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich in him. Has not God made the, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, what I've been preaching for 40 minutes, to save us. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that so as to bring to nothing the pomp of this world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of God, because of Him, you who believe are in Christ, not by your might, 
Not by your silver or gold. Not by your own industry. Not by your obedience. But by Him. By the King of kings. Jesus became wisdom to us from God. He became to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Embrace weakness. Don't trust yourself. Trust Jesus entirely. Trust your conquering shepherd king. And friend, if you have not trusted in that conquering shepherd king, or if you are trying to sort of trust in Jesus plus your own obedience and you're tired, listen, turn from all of that and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Friend, if you have been living and you're wondering why your heart is so empty, and you've been living for silver and gold, You've been trusting in the ramparts of this world. You've been trusting in kings and queens of this world. You've been trusting in your own industry to bring you that meaningful life. You've been trusting in your own religion. Turn from all of it and trust in Christ and find peace in Him. He's the one that you were made to live for. He's the one that was made to define you. He's the one that was made to be your boast. All of those things you're trusting in will come to ruin. So tell somebody that you want to follow Christ this morning. And for the rest of us, I leave us with the words of the psalmist in Psalm 20, verse 7 to 9. Where the writer says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us. When we call. That's our call. And now let's wait. For the sound of that trumpet. And may he find us in the fields hoping in him. Until it sounds. Let's pray together. God we confess that we do trust. In the horses and chariots of this world. So often. Thank you for the reminder of a king that comes in on a donkey, that comes in on a cross and will come back on a war horse, finishing off, making all that is right, all that is wrong, right. He's our hope. He's our great reward. Teach us to embrace our weakness, just as Christ did, that we might become strong in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.